All right, how's it going? My name's Matt Barr and you listen to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. My podcast where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thank you for listening to and or downloading the show and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm recording this in mid-November 2017 and like most of the action sports world, I spent a large part of last week transfixed at the news coming out of Nazare in Portugal where British big wave surfer and friend of the podcast, Andrew Cotton, suffered uh, one of the worst wipeouts in recent memory, and I'm sure you've probably seen it. If not, head over to the show notes where you're bound to find a link. Now, thankfully, Cotty's peers and team were on the scene to extract him um, from a very perilous situation. And as the story unfolded, it became clear that he'd actually been really lucky despite suffering an absolutely hideous-looking slam. And as it turned out, breaking a bone in his back and he survived to fight another day. If you've had any type of eye on the news, you probably saw a shed load of coverage about this with everybody from the Daily Mail to the BBC picking up the story. Now, as it happened, I'd emailed Cotty the day before to see if he could do an intro with Garrett McNamara, today's guest, who I'd heard would be visiting London at around the same time. Now, obviously, when I saw what had happened to Cotty, I thought nothing more about it. So imagine my surprise a couple of days later after the dust had settled somewhat, to get an email from Cotty, breezily introducing me to Garrett, recommending that he uh, do the podcast when he's in London, not even mentioning the possibly life-changing event that just occurred, which gives you uh, some indication of what a legend Cotty is and also what an incredible mindset the man must have to uh, still be finding time to tick off that type of, I imagine, quite low down the to-do list errand. Um, So yeah, thanks Cotty. As you might imagine, I followed up pretty quickly to see if Garrett would be up for it, meaning that two days later I was on my way to London to catch up with him, to find out about his latest project, and I hoped to uh, get the inside line on exactly what went down the week before, as well as look back over his career and um, basically see if I could have the usual looking sideways conversation with him. So Garrett McNamara, well, if you don't know who he is, um, he's a big wave surfer, but that doesn't really do justice to the range, scope and sheer scale of his achievements. His CV reads as a primer of big wave surfing history. Growing up in Hawaii, proving himself among those famously competitive breaks before following a calling for big waves and then dedicating the rest of his life to the pursuit of surfing those waves and chasing the biggest uh, waves on the planet, really. Jaws, Mavericks, Cortez Bank, Puerto Escondido. If it's death-definely big and relentlessly intimidating, then chances are Garrett's involved and he's sending it. He is, in short, a true titan of Monday surfing, and that really isn't overstating it. And let's be honest, he also has a slightly fearsome reputation, something that Cotty alluded to in our interview back in uh, episode two, I believe it was, when he said that he'd basically found Garrett scary and intimidating the first time he'd met him. And I can confirm that Garrett McNamara does indeed pack an unmistakable aura, but I also found him to be a really welcoming, thoughtful and reflective character, when I was heading up to London to speak to him, of course, I was interested in finding about finding out about the milestones of his career, his association with Nazare, his years in Hawaii and all the rest of it. And as I said, I also wanted to hear his take on what happened to Cotty. But above all, I was really interested in finding out how his own recent accident at Mavericks recently had affected him. I mean, if anything, this was even gnarlier than Cotty's. And as you'll hear, that experience has changed Garrett in ways that he still processing and has caused him to really take stock of his personal and surfing life. 
So overall, this is a really brilliant, revealing conversation with a world-renowned athlete at the absolute top of his game. Somebody with a fearsome focus, who's dedicated his life to one goal, and who now, just after he's turned 50, is dealing with some huge life changes in the same way he's dealt with every challenge in his career, with pitiless honesty, unyielding focus, a lot of heart, and as you'll hear, some really refreshing candor. Yep, it's a good one, this. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here it is, my conversation with Garrett McNamara on redefining the boundaries. Enjoy. Okay, Garrett, so how are you? You're in London for a few days. Um, what's going on? What are you up to over here? To be honest, I'm a little beat up from uh, the last week of um, a lot going on, but I'm doing my best to um, love being beat up. <laughs> yeah, so you, obviously you had a, a bit of a crazy week over in Portugal um, with what happened to, to Cotty. So do you, do you want to maybe explain a little bit about that, about what happened, if that's all right? Well, we, we started the week off at the Web Summit and um, Patty and the boys invited us in to speak and Mercedes as sponsor, so it was really, um, I was excited. And um, then this big swell pops up on the map and we prior engagements that we committed to. And the biggest, best day is right when we're supposed to be talking at the Web Summit, but. Right, what was the summit then? What, were you, what was that one? It's a Web Summit by um, Patty and the boys started in Ireland seven years ago with like 15 people doing a pub crawl. Now there's 50,000 attendees and oh, wow. millions okay. online and Al Gore spoke and right. I mean, you name it, all the techie guys, the, the, the beautiful minds of the world are all there um, bouncing ideas off each other and learning from each other, inspiring each other, uh, figuring out um, solutions for the world and, and solutions for the uh, computers and stuff okay <laughs> so you were supposed to be there and then you saw the chart well i actually went out with andrew and hugo early and got hugo a couple waves and then got andrew a couple waves and then got andrew one that didn't seem like it was really big but the ones that come on the inside sometimes magnify and, and stand up better and have a better wall and it was a really good wave and he he uh i didn't couldn't see what he was doing, but I watched the video and he's just faded really deep. And uh, then he turned to get back in. He's trying to get barreled doing what we do. And um, I'm sure he did it in his mind over and over and over. And he's finally putting it down and doing it. And yeah. and he, from, from my perspective, it was perfect. He executed everything perfect. There was just one little second little turn that uh, caused him to be a little too deep to pull in, and then he tried to jump, and right when he jumped, the lip hit. And it exploded him into the air, like a, from hitting the water, and then the lip hit him, and then he flew up about 30, 20, 30, 40 feet high and out. And then I think when he hit the second time is when he hurt his back. And, um, so he kind of bounced down the face, basically. You know, he just landed in front and bounced. It's weirdest. Never, you can ever. see it on the film, can't yeah. you? You can see like the trajectory of where he gets thrown up. I mean, it's like I'm a snowboarder. It reminded me like a half backflip on a snowboard or something. Like the kind of like the actual amount of distance that he went and and the trajectory of it. 
It was so, bizarre. So, where, so is that a really unusual way for, for, for somebody to fall out there? Well, usually when you fall, you go underwater or you get rolled into white water. You didn't get thrown in front of an avalanche-style whitewater rolling at you, and you're going out in front of it faster like a cannonball. Sure. He yeah. basically flew up and out like a cannonball. Like somebody just shot a cannon, and he was the cannonball. Yeah. But it's from the ocean floor up and out. It's yeah, yeah. weird. Um, so so what, what, what position were you? What could you see? I couldn't see anything. I was out the back. And then uh, Hugo was on rescue. And then I was coming in. And there was somebody else actually helping rescue. I forget who it was. It was just some random one of the other teams. Um, and that we couldn't see him at first. And everybody went to the left. And then I saw him pop up. So I went over in the white water. But it was just too much going on. And Hugo's usually the point man on that. So Hugo went in and, and after about three or four waves finally got to him and he got on the sled and then Hugo flew off the ski and then caught his ride and the sled in with no driver and it, and then he got flown off and then they pulled, I was out the back and I didn't right. know what was going on. I have two walkie talkies and I think all my main communication walkie talkie went silent. And um, did you know something serious I didn't. had happened? I had no idea. Okay. I was out the back, right? So for just about five minutes. So you just didn't. You didn't know at all what was going on. Finally, somebody came up to me and said, "Garrett, look, there's all the the skis on the beach. There's a bunch of people around." Right. It. So then I used my um, the cameraman walk. Not this one's for safety. This one's sure. for camera. So then I, I'm out. What's going on? And nobody's answering. And finally, um, Tim Benayathan answered. He said, "They pulled Cody up the beach." He looked like he was holding his head. I don't know what's wrong. They're pulling up in the bushes. I think they're going to get him to an ambulance. And then I heard, oh, he might not be coherent. He might have been knocked out. And I don't know. Two mixed stories. So I was out there pretty concerned. I almost went straight in up the beach, but it was already, it's really hard to get the skis off the beach and, and he, everybody was already in there. So I went around the other day, way, got my car and drove back and um, I get see the ambulance and I stop it just to make sure he's okay. I get in and he's normal, Cotty, but he's all bundled up with yeah. his neck brace with a stretcher, but he's, I'm all right, mate, yeah, I'm all right, mate. <laughs> right. But yeah, he's giving he, the thumbs up in the pictures, isn't yeah. he? And so did you, so I mean, you guys have a, obviously a real, well thought out safety protocol in those situations, right? Which looks like kicked in with the way everybody, because he's been really vocal online about how well the rescue was and how efficient it was. How quickly did he end up getting in like proper medical care and like getting to the hospital in that situation? Right, as soon as he got to the beach, probably about three or four minutes after the wipeout, wow. when he finally got to the beach, there was already a lifeguard on the scene. Okay. And then uh, from there, I'm sure they brought the stretcher down or maybe they just stabilized him right there. And then the ambulance is really quick. Us we used to have fire trucks and ambulances on the beach back in the day. Okay. When uh, we had a really tight-knit crew and the, the community was a little tighter. Now there's so many surfers and I don't know if there was an ambulance or not on the beach, but it got there quick. Yeah. So what's the, uh, what's the prognosis? Uh, what, what He's really, really lucky. Uh, fixed fracture L2, no ligament, no tendon, no disc damage, and the spine was perfect. Right. He's walking around already. Amazing. He really. went from, he, what, you know, the feeling I got a little eerie in the ambulance was like I can move my feet, but almost like I'm, my back's so sore and I don't know, maybe I'm not going to be able to. Right. But I can move them. It was a weird, like, I can move them. Not like a real confident I can yeah, move them, yeah. but I can okay. move them. Right. 
but I just had to f focus on positive thoughts and just told me, you'll be all right, mate, you'll be all right. And then I left and sure enough, he's all right. I actually did a post with the, the wave and said, everybody, please send positive thoughts. I, I think so, the yeah. positive, more people thinking alike and, you know, manifesting good things and he came out on top. Yeah, he just posted something similar last night, didn't he? Basically saying the amount of good wishes he's got for everybody off the surfing community, he's like really helped him. And, you know, he seems like he's already super positive and looking forward to getting back there. How, how long do you think before he'll be, he'll be back to sort of normal? He thinks January. That's amazing, really. <laughs> Maybe earlier. He, it was funny because um, I got to the airport here in London and the t customs lady said, oh, surfer. And, oh, yeah, we are. One of our guys was over in Nazareth. <laughs> it's a customs lady. Yeah, well, it's big news. He became a superhero overnight. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, the best thing that could ever happen. If he got a big wave, oh, this guy got another big wave. A big wipeout. Yeah. And it really made news. And because uh, we've all, you know, Cotty. Me, Carlos, uh, all these other guys have all gotten these big, big waves, and it definitely helped the career a lot. But this seemed to really help his career and really uh, let him know how much people really love him and how much love there is out there for the surfers here in Nazare and from all over the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And he's got his head on straight. We got some people to look after him right away, work with him on his body and his head, keep him sharp and focused. and and uh, positive and happy. My wife sent him a text and she said, Cody, you didn't break your, your, don't say your back's broken, say your back's healing. And he, he, he said that really resonated with him and that's all he's saying when people say, well, your back, yeah, my back's healing. <laughs> positive. Positive thoughts. Well, I mean, it leads me nicely to the next question, Richard, which was about um, your own experience in the last couple of years after what happened to you at Maverick. So you've been through like a really serious rehabilitation process after that so presumably you'll be able to give him the benefit of the insights that you learned from that experience so could you could you maybe are you up for talking about that could you maybe talk about what happened there the, the shattered my shoulder uh, the head in nine pieces and the shaft broke off the head and lodged itself in my pec for 24 hours until they pulled it out of my pec and stuck it back on the f cracked head uh, big plate, nine screws, that then my auxiliary nerve wasn't firing, so they had to do it all over again because the surgery failed a week later. Wow. And the blood supply, when you try and pull screws out and put them back in, your shoulder, your bone ends up like Swiss cheese with all these holes, and the blood supply is really, um, really, I, the chances of it not accepting the blood and- sure. It's very high. Right. And then my auxiliary nerve non-existent, so they said, you probably never surf again. Right. So that was what they seriously yeah, they told you. Yeah. So how did you, how did that feel? I knew I would. Yeah. I did positive thoughts. I knew I'd surf again. I knew at least I'd be able to tow again. And right. I could, I was pretty sure I'd be able to paddle, but I was happy already if I could just tow. Sure. So, and how did that happen? I mean, the footage is out online and I'll, I'll link to it, but do you, do you remember the actual incident? I just... Didn't paddle hard enough, and um, the board got stuck in the halfway down the wave or a quarter of the way down the wave, and I went over the handlebars full speed and hit so hard that it just shattered my shoulder, like hitting cement. So it's just literally the impact of yeah, that. The first impact, I believe, it was the first hit. Right. Wow. And how long? I mean, that must have been obviously pretty excruciating. How do you keep? How do you keep it together in that situation? Uh, it was pretty bad. Um, I mean. 
three months of the worst pain ever and my wife took such good care of me I have so much support from all my sponsors and then other people were sending me the best remedies known to man and the best supplements all natural all and my wife had all these essential oils and turmeric tea and turmeric milk and um i mean uh there's so many amazing companies with really amazing products that will enable you to heal a lot faster i don't luckily my wife was there because she forced me to do a lot of the stuff that i would have been slacking on like what well, like drinking a lot of water, right. making sure um, my blood is alkaline, a lot of greens, um, breathing. The one thing that I didn't do that I know I should have, and I've been, I shared with Cotty, look, breathe, conscious breathing. It's you just got to breathe out longer than you're breathing in. You breathe in three, breathe out four. You breathe in three, breathe out five. Three, three to ten is the best. Three in, ten out. Then you oxygenate your blood, and that will circulate, the make the blood stop coagulating make the blood circulate better but water is the key right and oxygen and alkaline you got water oxygen alkaline you're healing like record you'll heal like a third of the time like if it's supposed to be you know even less than yeah record time Cotty's going to be healing in record time he's he's actually doing everything consciously and um I'm glad that I learned, didn't quite implement it to 100% what he's doing. He'll heal so fast. So what about the physical regime you had to follow? Because obviously they're really, you know, crazy I'm still still, uh, working on it. It healed perfect. The auxiliary nerve came back, miracle. Um, The range of motion is probably 80, just scar tissue. It's scar tissue just holds you back. And um, the strength, probably 80. Yeah, so um, I'm feeling good. I, I actually want to go back to Mavericks and try and catch a wave. I'm ready to go try and catch another one there right now. What, what's your time frame on that this winter? I'm going to go on yeah, December 10th. Okay. That's when the swell is coming. Do you, do you have any kind of mental demons after something like that? I did have some mental demons. I didn't think I was going to have any. And the first surgery, I was like, yeah, I'll be back in no time. And right. Then, and I was pretty focused and happy and really in a good spot kind of Cotty is right now like yeah and then the second surgery just defeated depleted just put me down violated my being and I was just in a state of pain where nothing really mattered didn't really care about anything except this pain that was just ailing me it just consumed my brain it was the pain was so bad for three months straight, and I thought people, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna be able to go back out. You're gonna have PSD. I'm like, oh, I'll never have that. I, I mean, I'm really comfortable in the ocean. And sure enough, it started getting to me. Like, will I even like big waves anymore? Am I gonna, am I gonna like being underwater? Am I gonna want to go? I don't have to go. Am I gonna want to go? I, I, my whole life to feed my family I kind of had to go but luckily I was really wanted to as my passion so it didn't have to but I mean I I, I I chose to even though it was how I fed my family and so this was a new experience but I don't really have to I'm good I can kind of just retire but I'm choosing to and choosing to enjoy it and choosing to love it and choosing to get back out there because I want to so is that the kind of goal that you 
that you needed to fixate on to get you through it, that experience of the, of the rehab and the pain, like the fact that you could get through this and that you that you might one day be able to, to surf Mavericks again? Or was it not as was it not as long-reaching as that? Were you more just concentrating on the day-to-day to get through it? It was day-to-day, and even the rehab was so painful. For a, it's, it's still painful when I'm trying to break through the next layer of scar tissue, and they just push it a little further. You said 80, 80% mobility, right? I get, yeah. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I mean, obviously you're showing me now, which we can't see, but it looks it looks like it's it's almost there. The paddle's good, I will, can paddle. Yeah, yeah, and will it will it get like a full mobility, we get that back? I can get 100% mobility, I just have to work at it. Yeah. And I can be 100% perfect again. My, my uh, guy in Portugal who saw me like a month later, he's like, he went white and he said, Garrett's done. No more surfing for Garrett ever again. Really? And then I came back six months later and he went, are you Catholic? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> right. no, why? He's like, milagro, milagro, I'm a milagro. That sounds familiar. And he's like, he looks on his phone, milagro, miracle, miracle, miracle. And I go, miracle? He's like, yeah, you're a miracle. You surf, you're going to be no problem. <laughs> so you've completely proved him all wrong, all the doctors then, basically. Did you um, ever have any doubt? Did you ever think that you... Was there any point where you thought mm, maybe they're right? Uh, after the second surgery, yeah, I that pain. didn't want to be here anymore. Right, that I bad. Literally asked my wife to put a bag over my plastic bag over my head, and I was serious. That's how bad the pain was, and what? she wouldn't do it. So I wanted to go up to the jump and top and jump. That's how bad the pain was. Wow. They, they had me on this machine that's going like this, and <sighs> like you ever see the movie Hostel? Yeah. I felt like I was one of those guys. Those right. two guys that got captured and somebody gets to torture them. Right, that bad. Those doctors tortured me. Right. And w- once you started to recover and you started to come through that, but you still couldn't surf, how did you occupy your time? How did you fill the days? What did I do? Well, I'm lucky. I have, we just bought it, or about five years ago, we got two acres on the beach with four houses and they're all being remodeled and the whole yard's always transforming and we got fruit trees and chickens and bees and so the property consumed me. I walk around and do things with one arm, no problem, try and get the other and grab a old bar and try <laughs> crack too. I had fun. I just work I love working in my yard, so yeah. I, I was the yard consumed me. And then I would do a month of training and then a month of traveling the world working. Doing sure. whatever I was requested, asked to do. I took the, oh, I forgot about this. The amazing thing is I always said no. If somebody wanted me to do a trade show or a commercial or something at this day, at this time, yeah, I said no or I might not be there. Right. You got, I mean, you got to put in the subject. Yeah, yeah. 90% there, 10% not coming due to surf. Yeah. They'll never take you serious when you tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> so I accepted all the jobs and all the requests. You did the rounds. I did all, every other day was another request and it was uh, great. A lot of talks, working with the kids. Um, about as soon as I heard you were, you were up for trade shows, it, it flooded boom, in. Yeah, Mercedes flew me all over the world, yeah. everywhere. I mean, Taiwan, Ukraine. Germany, Italy, I went to all the, it was so fun. Yeah, it must have yeah. been fun. Accepted like, everything and had, and usually have this monkey on my back. Yeah. Just don't accept, 
the waves are coming. You got to go surf the wave. Commit to the that. The monkey jumped off. I didn't yeah. care about surf. Yeah, yeah. And I wholeheartedly didn't care. And you enjoyed it. I wholeheartedly didn't miss the waves. I see the guys surfing Jaws or Tahiti or wherever, and I was fine. Right. The pain put me through to another realm of consciousness or just a being another realm of being where I didn't have to surf every wave anymore so do you feel now that you're coming out of it do you feel different is that is, yes. that, is that a permanent change a hundred percent the monkeys off my back right so how can I you, don't can... have to surf every wave I don't have to go to every swell I can pick and choose and be real um, you know mindful of my wife and my kids and and the companies I'm working with and and pick and choose good projects to do and and commit to them and, and not worry if I'm gonna miss as well right so and how, how does that feel it, I'm like kind of I got freedom right <laughs> yeah freedom so the monkey jumped off so you're enjoying this new kind of perspective on it yeah I do really enjoy it right freedom from the monkey on my back that had to ride every wave but I'm really excited to go to the perfect days when there's no wind and the yeah. wind are perfect. I'm Nazare and Jaws and in front of my house, sunset. I'm really excited to, to surf. I, I really more want to focus on perfect waves. It doesn't have to be huge, but if it is huge, I'll be there if it's perfect. Yeah, okay. And obviously you're working on the documentary, which is one of the reasons yeah. you're, you're in London right now. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that kind of documents the story we're talking about. Is that, is that the idea? It's crazy. There's so many amazing stories that come into the story. Um, we've just started the training, you know, filming the training, and then my first time back out at Nazare, paddling, and caught amazing waves. Second time, caught amazing waves. Um, did was was gonna possibly tow a big one the day with Cody, but then he got hurt, so I didn't get my turn. And I actually wasn't that. I was I was kind of happy. Right. But then I saw some smooth ones. And I was like, ooh, I like smooth <laughs> ones, glassy smooth ones. Yes, but bumpy ones. Ah, yeah, I'm can, say, right. can take or leave them now. I'll drive. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but there was some smooth ones, some right. huge. So, but um, then we come across this dear friend of mine. Uh, his name is Derek Rebel. Okay. He's blind. He's born blind, and. He likes big waves. Right. He surfs. Wow. Just to make it Derek a little bit harder. <laughs> Derek can see. S-E-A. Right. Okay. So what's Derek's story? He's from Brazil. He came to Hawaii. I took him out of my wave jet a long time ago. Sure. Then um, he comes back and says, I want to get towed into a wave. And Carlos Berle trained with a bunch of Brazilian guys have been working with him, getting him. He's so good on the rope. He gets wow. up like nothing. And then I told him in front of my house on like 20, 30 foot waves and he got like five in a row. That's amazing. Straightened out on a huge one, no problem. And then he says, I want to come to Nazareth. And then I'm kind of like, eh. <laughs> if he comes, I can't just turn my back. And I feel responsible. If I, somebody else takes him, I'll feel like I should have been there. So the perfect day came. We told him in on like some 15 foot, 30 foot face or 20, 20 to 30 foot faces, 20 foot faces the first day, second day, 25 foot faces, third day, 30 to 40 foot faces. Amazing, so how does he, how, how can he, does he explain to you how he sees it? Like, he feels it and hears it. So he uses hearing, he uses other senses basically to, to sort of know when to go and know when to pick his line. And I let him go on the last three waves. 
a little early, to tell you the truth. And right. I was a little worried that he wasn't going to get down because okay. it was too early. <laughs> right. And he turns to keep it going, right. cuts back. There was a surfer, goes around the surfer. The surfer's like, hey, and he goes around. Wow. And then the wave starts to run, and he turns and goes down the line. That's amazing. I don't, it's a, I have no, I don't know. How, try, try to close your eyes and think about walking. How you could ride a giant wave in Nazareth or any wave anywhere, even a small one. Yeah, and And incredible. surf it, like, properly. Yeah, so he's not just hanging on, he's actually surfing it. Yeah, um, Keith Chardin and um, Anderson Cooper, they just reached out because they want to do a profile on... They want to get. They want to recap because we we did something a while ago. Sure. Uh, after the record wave, they want to come back and see where I'm at and, yeah. and, and showcase Cody and showcase Derek. So like, I actually uh, yeah, they're fun to work with and I'm excited, super excited. So it's all of these threads. They'll find the way in the documentary. You think? We gotta figure out what we can actually let them have. Okay. <laughs> oh, the threads. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, the threads. You're, you're, See, the stories just pop up every that's day. That's what I mean. It's unfolding as you as you create it. We so don't right. even. We couldn't have wrote it better. Yeah. This is better than I could have even wrote. Yeah. The yeah. Amazing. And what's the? Will it? Is there an end point? Will it be you going back to Mavericks? Is that where it's kind the of? Yeah. The end point when we go be going back to Mavericks. Okay. That is the end. Yeah. Sure. So so when when are you looking to get this out then? I'm gonna go to Maver. Uh, get it out. We don't have a projected release date. Oh, actually, you know, the produce, my partner probably does. Yeah. And it's um, it's going to be all, all, he's got really good distribution, but yeah, he knows all that stuff. I'm not yeah, yeah, yeah. Sir. Leave that to him. Who's the partner? Who are you working with? Pablo Garcia from Univision. Okay. Have you worked with him before? I worked, uh, I did a little something with him when he was doing a documentary on a friend of ours, Rafael Tapia. And I liked how he did things. And then I watched the movie and I liked it. So... I reached out to a bunch of producers said, hey, you guys want to do this uh, return to Big Waves doc? And a lot of people wanted to do it, but yeah. he stepped up. Okay. And he had distribution. Sure. Which is half the battle, right? Yeah. yeah. That's like, yeah. Yeah. You got distribution and pretty much yeah. everything else comes easy as long as the people that you're trying to get to uh, team up with understand the distribution part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, again, the it's film so made half of it, isn't it? And getting out of those either half, isn't it, basically? Um, right, so it's called Fearless. That's the working title. That's the working title. Yeah. So, just before we started recording, you said that you get asked the question a lot about fear. Like, has, so has your relationship with fear changed since this incident at Mavericks? Because I remember one of the things that Cotty said to me when I interviewed him for this was, he said he was struck when he first started going out with you, how you just did not seem to be scared at all. And you seem to enjoy, this, he tells one anecdote in the interview that I did with him about, you getting flogged basically and coming up and enjoying it and you know and him being like okay right this is this is this is different you know <laughs> like and him thinking like okay well maybe this is how you've got to be out here you know maybe you need to like embrace it has it's, that has that changed it's pretty beautiful to watch him um throughout his career and watch him achieve his goals and dreams and watch watch Cardi uh I feel I see so much of myself in him as far as um, how his life is unfolding and his approach and that's when we really have to be careful when we do things and who we surround ourselves with and how we're influencing them and but I uh, do my best to just 
influence them in a positive way. My approach is very um, balls to the walls, make <laughs> it or break it. Um, like put it all on the line to get the ultimate ride, yeah. not run for the shoulder. Sure. And he's, a, he, I felt like he was my, uh, like I was Obi-Wan and he was my Jedi warrior when I saw his line on that wave. Like, yeah. I was like so proud of him to, to even attempt to do that. Yeah, and, yeah. And I saw so much of myself in that turn and he, but he went even harder than I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, he He's me. taking it to another yeah, level. Yeah. So how did you? How did you? Um, the fear. Of, what was the question? Well, the question though? was like, has your relationship with fear changed? Since, My relationship since, with fear since, is, since, is, since the Mavericks incident. is still the same. Um, it's definitely put a wrench in the spokes. It's kind of. Um, I really focus on being in the moment and enjoying the moment, loving the moment, no matter what it is. That's my goal in life right now. That's what's changed. My goal is to always love everything I'm doing. No matter if it seems like the worst day of your life, you gotta embrace it and love it. Find but, the positives. I mean, but why would we wanna not to just put that that feeling in ourselves of, of um, negative, uh, it's corrosive when you think things, process them as negative or bad it's corrosive to ourselves, so why wouldn't we want to choose to process it as fun and beautiful or just a learning experience, a beautiful learning experience, and love it? And it's work. I'm not good at it. I'm working on it. Every day I'm working on processing everything as, wow, I love it. I well, love some it. people are good at that, right? Very some, good. some people are really good at that, but I think for, for a lot of people, you, you do have to remind yourself of that and you do have to work hard at it, don't you? So that's how it's been for you. That's my goal. But yeah. it's taken my fear and my daily life and my to a, a different a shift where I'm working on loving everything not being negative I, I was a lot of times thinking oh I could have done that better or we should do that better or this isn't good enough or that isn't good enough and I'm a perfectionist and I'm a micromanager and and I'm working on just letting everything be and, and letting it and and accepting it, whatever it is, and and loving, actually loving it, like really wholeheartedly loving all the situations instead of putting. I always like like I don't know what the term is, but what's the term of like where the grass is always greener? But but um, there's I don't know. Just I'm really focusing on embracing all my moments these days and, but the, the what has changed the fear is what well, fear is something we choose we don't have to be afraid but fear is when we think about the past or the future if you're in the moment embrace the moment do the best in the moment and actually love the moment there is no fear and the fear and excitement are the exact same thing as far as your body with the chemical reaction your endorphins and cortisol are released exactly the same when you face fear or face excitement. So you gotta process the fear as an excitement and, and a fun experience. And, and I'm working on that. Yeah. <laughs> Not a master at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but- uh, So you can, le you can I, learn that as well. I've been thinking about this. I went back out and I got pounded by a little wave and I wasn't really enjoying underwater. I wasn't in the moment. I was thinking about, oh my God, how I'm underwater. Oh, I'm the next wave. And I'm, I'm, I wasn't practicing what I'm preaching. <laughs> so, you know, you gotta 
it's it's work in progress. You got to write things down every day that you want to work on and, and work on them. Um, is that so? That's something that you do. Yeah, write like it goal down. Goal setting. Yes, hundred percent. Have you always done that? Since I started at thirty five, and everything has been pretty easy since then. Really? Yeah. So what does that? Give never you? too early, never too late. Sure. So what does that give you? Just a focus. It gives you purpose. You know what you're doing all day, every day. Instead of most of us are walking around blind and doing whatever we're told or whatever we think we're supposed to be doing, and we don't have a goal and we don't have a map to follow. And if your goal is your passion, and you have a selfless approach, like you can. Some with your passion, yeah. Bear, figure out how you can serve humanity with your passion, and then make your map around that. And every day is so purposeful and meaningful and beautiful and fun and amazing. And and that's what I'm really working on as well. It was always a goal with a map for uh, ego. That's what was always my goals, and right. just so I could keep surfing. Yeah, yeah. So I could sure. feed my family and surf with my passion. Yeah. But I never really had a selfless approach. I always thought to myself, okay, when I, my main goal was take care of my family, take care of my friends, and take care of the world. But this turned into love my family, because if the world's going to be here. It'll sort itself out. Love my family, love my friends, and love the world. And if we love the world, then we'll still be here. But if we don't, then the world will be here and we won't anymore. So that's the new Garrett. So and have, uh, are the people that know you well, are they noticing this change? Uh, I don't think it's been long enough for anybody to really notice, except for the people here in Nazareth, because this had a shift recently, a sure. real, real heavy, just realization of what's important and what matters and what we're here on Earth for, and it's what's the point if you're not doing something. It's like, what's the point? Yeah. So, how long is your association with Nazareth now? Two thousand ten was. And so how did seven you? Years. Well, how did that start? Got an email from um, this guy Dino, who worked for the city hall, who would tell everybody in Portugal that his wave is the biggest wave in Portugal, and they all say, "You're lying, you're lying." Right. And, and so he had to get somebody to ride it to see how big it really is. And right. So he's it, a visionary. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Invited me, and boom, we right. found out how big it was right away. Sure. What was the that second first? year? We got the world record. Yeah. Right. So what was that first session like? Do you remember? Do you remember? Thinking? Yeah, it was really fun. It was. It was uh, euphoric, beautiful. I had a really light board and a glassy day, and I could uh, everything worked perfect. I didn't get pounded. Didn't realize how heavy the waves were. Right. I never got pounded. Sure. And um, did I'd you? I'd been serving jaws a lot up to that point, so I was really ready for that type of wave. Right. Except for there's no channel. Right. Did you immediately think, okay, this is a different setup. This is somewhere that I could. Because you dedicated your life to this place, right? So I dedicated my life wholeheartedly, 100%. And I knew from day one that we found the Holy Grail. I walked up and saw it and just was mesmerized, captivated. And it's, it's I mean, for lack of a better way of describing it, but it was 100%. Ta-da! The Holy Grail! <laughs> right. Right. That's what it was. First, second, I walked up, and I'd I'd been working with this manager, Lohasi, who taught me about marketing and production and how to make things. You know, and I, I was just a simple surfer who didn't know anything about anything. Yeah. And he taught me. He was a senior vice president for Time Warner, so he kind of understood the corporate world. But I kind of wish I didn't even understand it still today. But I know a little bit, so I knew what to do. I knew to get it on BBC and CNN. You got to for lack of a better word, control the media. <laughs> Get it where you want it 
and get it out to the world and and all the surfers will come but got to go to the world and so we got on a bbc and cnn four years in a row yeah and now portugal is flourishing beyond do you, th- do you think that's just because of the the vantage point that you can that you can have at Nazare? Because obviously it's such a unique setup, isn't it? It's so close to shore, and people can because it immediately just caught the media interest, didn't it? It was the, the vantage point makes it the most special place on earth for visitors and spectators to witness such raw beauty and power and feel it crashing beneath your feet and and, and actually come up and spray you. You can f- be fully embedded in the biggest wave in the world and then you got the canyon which creates it there's nowhere in the world that there's this narrow wide kind of wide canyon that narrows like a like a compression chamber all the way to the beach and then the waves here and there's a shelf there so the swell comes down the shelves and the canyon at the same time and as soon as it hits the shelf it slows down and as soon as it gets in the canyon it goes fast and then as it gets to the end of the canyon, it gets compressed, and then you have this, it turns the wave a different direction, and then they, they don't meet, always meet, sometimes, right. they, and then when they do, okay, the I, I Because I, I, I know what you're describing, but I didn't really understand like why it was happening. So that's why, basically, that's why you see these shifting canyon. peaks, and okay. There's nowhere, on the world, nowhere in the world that I've discovered yet anything like it at a sandbar. Right. Magnifying, soup on, just beyond. So where, what, you grew up in Hawaii, mm-hmm. yeah? When did you find surfing? I started surfing at 11. I actually came out with my book, Hound of the Sea, which uh, my memoir, and it's really a, a men's journal or, I don't know, a bunch of good write-ups. Sure. Say, somebody said, yeah, I'll put a link to it. Somebody said, painfully honest, don't tell anybody it's G-rated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll link to that. We'll link to that. But yeah, you cover, so that's a lot about your your. Yeah, it was childhood. a crazy childhood. Yeah. Uh, we were lucky. My mom forced us to move to Hawaii. Unfortunately, her, uh, the, the guy she was with left her when we got there. Right. So we were pretty down and out. I mean, we what, had like a roof over our head. Yeah, we had the government assistance called welfare, and we were, she didn't have a job, and we had a roof over our head. But like true story, she would buy powdered milk, right? You know, Kraft macaroni and cheese, frosted flakes. I mean, compared to Africa, we were in, we were styling. But compared yeah. to all of our friends, we had nothing. Sure. And we were lucky. She got powdered milk and mixed it with normal milk. So we got half and half. It wasn't much better. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, then we found a surfboard. Right. Everything so this is you was, and your brother, right? Yeah, and that was it. We two guys carrying the board to the beach. Right. Get to the beach, nothing mattered. You got waves, you got warm water, you got sun, you got magic. So where were you surfing when you were when you were learning when you were growing up? Right in front of our house on the dry reef for a while. It's a little a weird little spot that I live right next to now still. Okay. Um, and then we went to Haliva. Okay. Haliva was light years behind Sunset and all those other spots, and sure. didn't have any sponsors and didn't have much attention, but. It had a lot of Japanese. Right, and okay. And we befriended the Japanese, learned how to speak Japanese, and started embarked on a Japanese career for about 10 years. Right, yeah, I did read that in your book, actually. You, like, you were big in Japan, right? Early early days, weren't you? Right, okay. Kore nihongo shiberu, dagara ippai nihonjin tomarachi. What does that mean? I, got, I speak Japanese because I had a lot of Japanese friends. Right, right. <laughs> and I still do. Um, so when did you start 
I mostly know slang and bad words. Uh, that's the first thing you learn, isn't it? That's what you need to know. Um, so when did you start realizing that big waves were the, the arena that you were going to focus on? I was so terrified of big waves. I vowed to never surf up over 10 feet. And really? I had a bad experience at Sunset Beach and you know, never going back out there. And then um, I was hanging out with this older guy. His name was Gustavo Leverte from Peru. And he grabbed me by my neck and literally said, Punky, you're coming out. You know, right. the Volcom neck pinch. And yeah, you're coming sure. with yeah, me. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> right. like, Come on, Punky. I got the perfect board. He gave me the perfect board, gave me the perfect advice. Right. And I had the perfect session. And I was consumed. You were that, that was it. Right. I lived for big waves from that point on. Okay. And then you became part of that community in Hawaii that started surfing more and more the outer reefs and pioneering those spots is that kind of how it went yeah my brother was just the man he took over pipeline and rockies and there were two most photographed spots in the world at yeah. that time and he ruled both of them he's synonymous with those spots right <laughs> yeah and i just kind of prowled around and did whatever and had just like to get barreled and went to sunset and then started going to pipeline and started going to waimea and then uh, then the towing surfing came and and the waves got really crowded and I had to battle my brother in the lineup. So when he was out, I pretty much didn't even paddle out. Right. Just to wait for him to come in. And, sure. And then all of a sudden a towing came. And wow, I can go in the outer reef. Nobody out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Just pure f love and, and no, not, nobody, no cameras, no nothing, just surfing. And then it became a cool sport that yeah. ended up being i got then i started working with, then the brazilians started coming and hawaii was packed with all these jujitsu specialists and all of a sudden <laughs> the locals had to learn jujitsu to be able to stand to, to, to you know to take care of our territory and um instead of again instead of uh, getting mad about it i made friends with all the brazilians and then i worked with brazil for about 10 years all, right. all a couple uh, first bad boy and then rendos and they were amazing. They like I'd show up at the airport and I had billboards in, in the airport and then Playboy magazine and outside magazine and, and I'd go around San Paulo billboards and I'm like, wow, this is cool. And that was before I even found Nazare. And same in Tokyo. The Japanese put billboards in Tokyo and it was crazy. So what are your main memories when you think back to those days? Anything main stand out? Memories. Um, I remember when I was 17 and I first went to Japan and you know we were little Hawaiian stoner kids and <laughs> smoked a lot of pot and and right there the light went off and I said wow I can make this a career right and I quit smoking pot and came home and tell my brother look we gotta focus and then Liam focused way harder than me I, I told him we gotta focus but he ended up being the one who did really well and I just kind of Kicked the can around and made you know like five hundred a month or something and barely got by and rented rooms during the summer so I could rent rooms during the winter so I could go travel in the summer and sure that was, you know the memories was that light bulb when I said oh, wow I could do this and um, after that the next memory was oh I got a family I can't I'm miserable I'm going driving by the surf every day. And, going to my store oh yeah because you had a surf store didn't you at this yeah. point yeah and then I said okay let's write my goal right keep surfing so this is let's the point my map right 35 okay so this is when you thought right I need to I need to find a new path basically 
And I'd already been all over the Tokyo. I'd already been all over we were at a career, Brazil. And I was kind of winding down, you know, making maybe 500 a month again. Yeah. at my store to make the money. Sure. And then I was like, I got to see if I can give it another go. And I actually wrote my goal and wrote my map for the first time. And it was a, a selfish goal so I could actually be, not selfish, I'm happy, my kids are going to be happy, my wife's going to be happy. So, but I didn't have like a bigger meaning, like a selfless, um, like how do I, how do I serve, how do I help the world, how do I make a difference in my goal? Sure. It was just keep surfing. Yeah, yeah. Always driven by that, basically. Right. Um, but you were competing as well at this point and you, you know, you were, like you say, you were traveling a lot. A lot. This is, was this the point when you, was it a bit later when you went to Alaska, you did that famous trip where you, you started trying to surf the, the glaciers up there, basically? 2007, we went and surfed the glacier, which was the most intense situation I've ever put myself in. Where did that idea come from? Was that your idea? A friend, my friend Ryan Casey, his dad shot Alaska Spirit of the Wild. Sure. For an IMAX movie, and yeah. he was there on location helping, being a gopher running around. His brother was shooting, and he kept seeing these waves from the glacier cavern. And he said, Dad, shoot it, come on, you shoot the wave. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He was like, Oh, we're getting the cabins. Right. And then finally, the brother went, It's like, you know, 70 millimeter film. It's like, yeah. Big dollars, one little touch, yeah, yeah. and she went, Okay, shut up. <laughs> and, right. and then, like, 10 years later, he sends it. I got this idea. We'd been filming a lot and traveling the world together. And he's like, This idea, this light bulb went off. And don't, is anybody there? Don't let anybody know about this. And I'm sending you a quick time pile dial up modem. <laughs> I don't know if you're old, you know, old enough to even know about oh, that. I remember dial that. Up. I remember that. Oh, you commented uh, me there. I remember them. Yeah. So you had it up there. He sends the thing. I he make sure nobody's there, and then the wave looked good. And I was like, it looked like Halibut, where I learned. Right. And then he said, let's go scout it. And we went and scouted it, and then we went and surfed it. But you're literally waiting for icebergs to carve off off and the glacier. So t- talk me through that. So what you in a in a boat? Like are you waiting? Like how's it work? We had uh, these two guys drive jet skis up there and. We would sit under the glacier. First, we were far away from it, and he threw me at the first one, and I was kind of close when he threw me at it, but it didn't. I rode for a little bit, but it didn't really break, and then I sunk, and all I could think about was things going to land on me. So it was terrifying. And then um, we got closer and closer, and we're 50 feet away, and it's 300 feet tall, and if it falls flat, it's called booking, it falls like a book, it, will smash us you can't predict those things that's for sure no and uh, it was a sensory overload and from that point forward I didn't I was really comfortable in the ocean I couldn't get the rush in the ocean anymore after that sensory overload right really okay because that yeah I guess that is going to set the bar much much (laughs) really like water reef cool yeah Ice, 300 feet tall ice glacier iceberg (laughs) (laughs) yeah right (laughs) right okay um so after all that's happened in your career you know we've covered a lot there really um and you've explained the the, the changes that, that have been happening are you st- are you still motivated to to go for the those sort of hundred foot waves if you like if they're possible i'm motivated to ride perfect waves yeah and if it's a hundred foot and perfect i will be very motivated sure very motivated yeah i perfect was either glassy or light offshore yeah. South, south, 
you know, east or east southeast or southeast and light motivated what ambitions have you got left in surfing no i'm just want to have fun love surfing i'm ambitious to ride perfect waves with my son he's three now okay nice i'm ambitious to share my new approach to life with everybody and ride perfect waves yeah how do you um how do you relax how do i relax uh well it depends what type of relaxing are we talking about downtime bit of garret time what does that look like I'm still working on that. Um, I'm gonna go back to Hawaii and be with my wife, that property, and I'm focusing on really enjoying it and not having to go work in the yard all day every day and and, and work on um, you know meditating in the morning and saying over and over in my head what is important to me and working on it all day long yeah. and writing it down and following my map having purpose having purpose all day every day and, and the purpose is around making sure everybody around me is happy you know think about how my decisions are going to affect everybody around me everybody who's affected by my decision make sure that it they're going to be feeling happy they're going to love it they're going to have fun with the decisions i make and that's something i'm really working on and it's definitely going to take a lot of work yeah okay i got one more um what advice would you give the 30-year-old Garrett? 30-year-old Garrett? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, go to the future real quick and find out what he knows at 50, what you know at 50, and bring it back to 30. <laughs> um, that's the trick. 30-year-old Garrett, be grateful. Accept everything. Think about the people around you, how your decisions affect them get out of your ego driven monster appetite for big waves and think about everybody around you awesome well Garrett thanks a lot really appreciate it so there you go that was my conversation with big wave uh, surfer Garrett McNamara and I told you it was a brilliantly honest insight into the way his recent life-changing experiences have made him take stock and reevaluate his life really really enjoyed that one uh, so thanks for coming on Garrett and thanks for getting into the spirit of the Looking Sideways podcast. Looking forward to seeing the film. I should also say a huge thanks on this occasion to Jordan Williamson, Garrett's agent. I've got to be honest, I was an absolute pain in the ass to Jordan, who are basically forced to find a slot for me in Garrett's busy schedule. But she came through and the result is this great episode that we've got here. So thanks, Jordan. Hope my portrait doesn't stay on the CSM office dartboard for too long. Okay, that's it for me this week. Next week, I've got yet another brilliant conversation, this time with Hugo Tagholm, Chief Exec of Surfers Against Sewage, an all-round charismatic powerhouse. If you've got any interest in the environmental issues we face at the minute and are wondering how you can make a difference and get involved, then let, listen to that one. Let Hugo inspire you with his vision and endless energy. Don't miss that one. It's a really good one. As I said at the top, thanks for listening. If you want to hit me up or find out more, Head over to my site, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You'll see the usual extensive show notes to accompany this episode. You can find my social handles or just hit me up with some feedback on uh, podcast.wearelookingsideways.com. Yeah, and that's it for this week. Nice one. And I'll see you next time. Cheers. See you later. (laughs) 